We're still in the series, More Than Enough. This will be number 14 in the series. We started this back on July the 8th and, uh, of this past summer, and we've, we've had you know, a five-week period where we focused on vision and stewardship. Then, of course, we had in December Christmas messages and a few guest ministers. But this is the 14th message in this series. More than enough, talking about our covenant partner, El Shaddai. That's the way he introduces himself to us. We should believe. That's what he will be to us if we relate to him in a way that the scripture says we should. You know, a covenant is a two-sided agreement. God's got a, a part to play, and we've got a part to play. His is to be more than enough. If we fulfill our covenant responsibilities, that's exactly what he will be. And so this series has really been designed, hopefully, uh, to help us understand what we do to enable God to be more than enough in our life. Because many Christians live, still live, in the land of captivity. They don't even have enough to meet their need. They're in covenant with God. But, uh, you know, they're still in captivity to the world around them, the world's ways, the world's words, the world's experiences of life, and it's robbed them even of their own right to choose the destiny they'd like to have. And, of course, uh, you know, we are seeing in the example of the children of Israel the process or progression of life that will take people from captivity in the world to a place of beginning to know and learn about God uh, in the example of the children of Israel. Their captivity in Egypt, a type of the world, was turned and then they spent time in the wilderness where they began to learn about God. Didn't seem like they had much direction. They really didn't know a lot but it was a period of learning about the Lord and what was possible with him and through him. And then they came to the land of promise. There's a promise of God for every one of you, every one of us in covenant with God that flows with milk and honey. It's a land of abundance, a land that is more than enough. And of course, the New Testament says, you know, it's beyond what we can ask or think. And of course, uh, you know, the, the confrontation or the encounter finally with that land as we begin to perceive the will of God, the destiny that God has planned for us. And then as we step into that land, then we'll begin to experience excess. So we're using the children of Israel as a way to understand the process of breaking out of captivity into a level of freedom to at least make your own choices. But a lot of times not knowing what those choices should be, feeling that perhaps we don't have the direction, understanding we'd like, but we are getting to learn about God. We are seeing a miracle or two here or there. But then the day comes when we're standing this side of the Jordan looking across at our land of promise. 
And so for the last couple of Sundays, we've been talking about preparation to enter in to the land that is more than enough. You know, you've gone through the first two phases, and this is a lifelong process. We'd all like it to happen over the course of a week. You know, all things are possible with God, but likely uh, is not. This is going to be a lifelong process of, of constantly progression, progressing toward more than enough and then more and more than enough and then more and more and more than enough. And here's where the religious mindset has to go. Don't get to where you say that's enough. I don't need anymore. Well, if you don't need anymore, that's fine. The kingdom of God needs whatever you don't need. And so your ability to do what the word calls abound to every good work is predicated on your understanding that God will always provide you with more than enough. So you can abound to every good work. But in looking at the children of Israel as our example, you know, we've come now to the place where the, we're close. We can see we can begin, and as that would relate to our lives, we can begin to sense and know that our destiny lies in a particular direction. We can see a little bit of it over here. We still haven't entered in. There are things that have to, we have to prepare. There's preparation for the day you step into this new destiny. We looked at that for the last couple of times I was with you, and of course, you know, preparation includes things like spiritual and physical preparedness or preparation. It involves direction. It involves timing. And at the end of our last message, we spent a, a quite a bit, put quite a bit of emphasis, because the Word does, on the fact that God prepares relationships for you to help you succeed in moving into your new venture, uh, you know, the plan of God for your life, into your land of more than enough. He'll prepare relationships for you. So there's an emphasis in the Word on positioning yourself relationally and then knowing how to relate to people in a way that God can use them in that fashion. If you weren't here, those would be good messages for you to download and get caught up on. Today, we're going to talk for the first time about actually entering your land of more than enough. And of course, the, uh, uh, the key uh, event that brings you into your land that we'll read about now is crossing the Jordan. So let's open our Bibles to Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3, and uh, I'm going to, just because, you know, it looks more sophisticated and intellectual. I'm going to put these on. And Joshua spake unto the priests, verse 6 of Joshua chapter 3. Let me get myself organized. Joshua chapter 3, verse 6. And Joshua spake unto the priests, saying, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass over before the people. 
And they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. Now, I don't have time today to make a verse-to-verse examination, but that's an important thing for us to, to embrace. Uh, just as God was with Moses, he is saying, I will be with you, Joshua. And he says, I will be with you, whatever your name may be. And of course, uh, Jesus really does the same thing in the new covenant. You know, just as he was with the early church, he will be with each of us that have lived, you know, 2,000 years later than the early church. So it's an important understanding. It is vital for you to know in whatever endeavor you undertake, God is with you just as surely, just as strongly as he was with Moses, as he was with Joshua, as he has been with others in the Bible. Verse 8, And thou shalt command the priests that bear the ark of the covenant, saying, When you are come to the brink of the water of Jordan, ye shall stand still in Jordan. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come hither and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Hereby ye shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. Wow, what a bunch of sites. But it is true that opposition will be arrayed against you just as sure, surely as it was against the children of Israel. More than it looks like you can possibly overcome. When you begin to step out toward conquest, victory, and then ultimately the blessing of God being more than enough in your life. And get out of the mindset, please, that I really don't want to, I don't want to take on the Jebusites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, whoever they all are. I don't want to take on the opposition. All I want is a little quiet, a little comfort. I'm good where I am. I'm too old. We can't be doing this. I just want to enjoy what's left of my life. I'm 76. I plan on being here another 50 years. I don't know, however long it takes. And I can't imagine standing still. Getting comfortable with where you are is not an option. I don't care how young or how old you are. The moment your purpose in life begins to wane, you begin to die. So don't be looking at this and saying, well, I don't want to encounter any, uh, any of these ites, you know, any of the resistance that's going to be there when I start moving into my land of promise because that's what God's telling them. He said, I'm going to be doing something here part in the Jordan. He said, I'm going to be doing that so you'll know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out all opposition to your efforts to make it into your land of more than enough. 
Verse 11, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, uh, of the Lord of all the earth passeth over before you into Jordan. Now therefore take you 12 men out of the tribes of Israel, out of every tribe a man, and it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand upon a heap. And it came to pass when the people removed from their tents to pass over Jordan and the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people. And as they that bear the ark were come into Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped in the brim of the water, for Jordan overfloweth all his banks all the time of harvest. I should probably say this here. If you've been to Israel and you've seen the Jordan River, you might have thought about this account. That's not a very big deal. I mean, it's not much more than a creek in most places. And, you know, you can, you know, walk, walk across it in thigh deep water at the most. Not very far, 50 feet, whatever. But this is the flood stage. Verse 15 says, For Jordan overfloweth all his banks all the time of harvest. Now this is simply a fact of this time of year uh, in this part of the world. We have what we see referred to in the word as the latter rain uh, coming together with the melting snows on the mountains of Lebanon. And you have a flood going on. <clears throat> in most of the places that, uh, you know, you would cross the Jordan at this time of year, you're talking in terms of hundreds of yards of raging torrents of water. So it's not a little deal. And uh, the interesting truth is that if they had been willing to wait for about three months, then it'd be back to a creek size and a miracle wouldn't have even been needed. But now is the time that God tells them to cross. And as we'll see, you know, probably later, there are military reasons that made it important. Joshua was one of the foremost military commanders in all history. I can remember, uh, you know, in college, sitting in military science classes, listening to listening about Joshua's battles. He was a tactical genius, uh, strategic uh, genius as well, I believe. And, you know, and his, his tactics and strategy are studied today in all branches of the military in any, uh, you know, military classroom setting you might go into. There were reasons militarily it needed to happen now. They couldn't wait three months until... The floods subsided. And they wouldn't have needed a miracle. They wouldn't have gotten a miracle. And the doubts are very great that they would have had a lot of success in becoming conquerors and the conquests they had to make in order to experience the, the blessing of God's abundance in their life. You know, one of the uh, misunderstandings a lot of people have is that God's just, he's, he's, he's just a loving, and he is these things, a loving, beneficial, abundant, graceful God who will do it 
for you no matter what you do. And you can understand from your own experience in life, probably yesterday and the day before, that ain't true. You know, you see that it's not God's grace with no other constriction or restriction uh, that is going to bring you into your land. It is a process of your making your own decisions. God loves you. He is El Shaddai, but he doesn't pour more than enough on you just because you enter covenant with him. He says, I've placed before you this day life and blessing, death and cursing, but you choose. We have to make choices that are going to direct our experience of life. You don't like what your life is right now? Then don't be saying, God, why did you not do this? Or God, I prayed and you didn't answer. Or God, I've been in faith and it didn't come. No, you don't like where your life is right now. You need to begin looking at the choices you've made. I'm getting off course, but it's a simple truth. Your side of the covenant is to align your life with who God says he is, and he tells you that in his word. Amen. And as you align your life with his word, you're aligning your life with his abundance. El Shaddai. At any rate, so uh, I guess I better get back to reading the scripture here. But we can understand that uh, this time of year, you know, the Jordan was hundreds of yards wide, raging torrents. They couldn't wait three months until it had receded. Militarily and in terms of God's timetable, it just was not doable. They had to go now. But in order to go now, they had to have a miracle. And we see in verse 16, that as soon as the feet of the priest had been dipped in the water, verse 16, that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon a heap very far from the city Adam, and that is beside Zaratan. And those that came down toward the sea of the plain, even the salt sea, failed and were cut off, and the people passed over right against Jericho. And the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan, and all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. Chapter 4, verse 1, And it came to pass, when all the people were clean passed over Jordan, that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every tribe a man, and command ye them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones, and you shall carry them over with you, leave them in the lodging place where you shall lodge this night. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had prepared of the children of Israel, out of every tribe a man. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan, and take you up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask their fathers in the time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Then you shall answer them that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over Jordan, the waters of Jordan were cut off. And these stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. 
Well, this place where they lodged is not called out by name right here, but in the next chapter or two, it's referred to as Gilgal. And they made a memorial of stones at Gilgal so that all subsequent generations, you know, would know that this is where God performed a great miracle. So that's what we're looking at, a great miracle. It is on a par with the Red Sea miracle, but has a different purpose. And there are different earmarks uh, that, that need to be noted. I mean, I mean, if it's actually the subtitle of this sermon is The Miraculous. Because if it's true that God's going to initiate your life of conquest, victory, and blessing with a miracle, which it says right here is the case. When it's time for you to cross your Jordan, when it's time for you to take that first step into the impossibilities that lie between you and where you're convinced God wants you to go, there will be a miracle. And if that's the case, then we need to know a little bit more about miracles, I think. Well, first of all, there, there are ditches on either side of the miracle road. There's one ditch that a lot of the body of Christ is in who have become so intellectually arrogant that they feel like, and it's very often professed, that God's not doing miracles anymore. Maybe that was for the startup of the New Testament church or other things that, you know, the Bible writes about. But he, he you know, he doesn't do miracles today. That's one ditch because he is a miracle-working God. The other ditch is that you're just trying to live from miracle to miracle because you don't see how you can get through your challenges in your body without a miracle, in your marriage without a miracle, without divine intervention. How am I ever going to get the kind of money that uh, would fall in the category of being more than enough? Uh, you know, it's miracle living. Living for a miracle is a better way to put it, not miracle living. But the other ditch is living for the miraculous. And I think that is rooted in part on a misconception of God's sovereignty. A lot of people just say, well, God, he created all of this. He is sovereign. If this thing happens to me, he either let it or did it. So God's sovereignty is what is going to determine the outcome of my life. And, you know, I know what I need right now. I need him sovereignly to intervene in my challenge and bring a miracle or I'm stuck here. That's the other ditch. So where does the balance lie? I mean, on one side, God doesn't do miracles anymore. On the other side, you don't know how you're going to survive without a miracle. And he's God and he can do one if he wants. And so I'm going to pray for a miracle. I don't have the goods to deal with this issue. So it's got to be a miracle or utter failure, maybe death. Or God doesn't deal any miracles anymore. Balance 
is that God does mostly do miracles for unbelievers. Confirming the preaching of the word with signs following, the miraculous often occurs in a, an unbeliever's life to convince them to look further into the word or in the life of a very young believer such as we saw in the wilderness when they're still trying to decide if they really want to do this God thing or not. You know, they got born again, but everyone's subject to second thoughts. And so, you know, you see miracles done for the unbeliever and really young believers. Uh, but, you know, you also see miracles done in specific instances for believers. And those instances always have to do with bringing you into a life of conquest, into a life of victory, into a life of blessing. And again, I feel this thing coming at me. I don't want to conquer anybody. I just want to, you know, I want to relax a little bit, get out from under the gun, whatever's stressing you out. Come on, think bigger than that. There has to be a purpose somewhere that will stir an ember of fire that was once born in you and cause it to ignite again. Because without purpose, I'm telling you, uh, you know, that's like throwing in the towel on life. I don't care how old you may be. And it isn't just related to, uh, to the older folks. There are a lot of young people that don't want to do anything except get on their devices and to heck with the world. Play video games all day. And I'm not mocking or making fun of anybody or, you know, the wonderful technology that is available that can be used the right way. But the point being, you've got to have a purpose in you that is born of God. He doesn't make it hard to find out what it is. I don't really want to spend the time going here again because I do this a lot. But you have to listen to the desires that aren't infected by your flesh. The desires that don't originate from your flesh. That are in line with the word of God. And there will be those kinds of desires for everybody. Somebody just might like to tinker with mechanics a little bit. Somebody might like to rebuild engines. Somebody might, you know, might uh, be naturally artistic and can draw and they, they have a desire to do that. I don't know what it is. I mean, there are many that have a desire just to invest themselves in their children and raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Desire will tell you where your land of promise lies. That'll give you the orientation toward it. And once you acknowledge that fact, and start praying in the Holy Spirit about God's will for your life, things will start coming that will take you down the path of that desire that is born in you by the Holy Ghost. And God said in Psalm 37, 4, that he has given you the desires and secret petitions of your heart. That's the Amplified. All we have to do is commit our way unto him. That means use the word of God to shape 
your view of how to live this life and be committed to it. Yeah, you'll make mistakes, but get back on the path. Be committed to it. Trust him. Commit your way unto the Lord. Trust him. And what will he do? Bring it to pass. Don't have time to elaborate or I won't finish this message. But understand you can't allow a purposeless life to continue because it's taking you toward death. Death is seldom instantaneous. It's a progression. It's to slide down a hill that is filled with darkness and difficulty until life is literally gone. So, if you feel without purpose and you're having trouble getting stirred at the idea of having a mark that you've got to press toward instead of being able to lollygag around on your little device or, you know, prop your feet up in front of the TV, all of these things, you know, perhaps can be a blessing, but not if they rob you of your purpose. All right, enough about that. So basically, we need to understand there are ditches, miracle ditches. He doesn't do them anymore. Or that's the only thing that's going to save you is if you can talk God into a divine intervention give you a miracle to get over this problem, but then there'll just be another and another and another and another. He wants you to learn how to live by faith, not by miracles. And the middle of the road is to understand most of the miraculous things you'll see in your Christian walk will be done for believers' benefit, unbelievers' benefits or new believers. You are entitled to expect miracles of a certain type in your life. And those are the ones that propelled you into a destiny of conquest and blessing. So, um, that's one important point to know. The second significant thing, I believe, is for you to realize um, the difference between the Red Sea miracle and the Jordan miracle. The Red Sea miracle was to take believers, unbelievers, or young believers out of captivity to the world that they were in. And it's the kind of miracle that had no natural explanation for it. Moses sticks his rod out over the Red Sea. It splits, the water piles up a couple hundred feet high on either side. They walk across on dry ground. And as soon as the last of them have crossed, the water closes in on those that were pursuing them. An absolute demonstration of the miraculous power of God without any natural explanation. You know, every now and then somebody tries to explain the Red Sea away, uh, you know, by saying, for instance, well, they didn't really cross right at the Red Sea. It was a place called the Sea of Reeds uh, where they, you know, the water was only ankle deep. They could just walk across. Well, it's even more of a miracle that the whole Egyptian army drowned in ankle deep water. I mean, but we, we know for a fact that uh, the Red Sea, of course, is <clears throat> unexplainable in natural terms. And that's going to typify 
the kind of miracle that is done for the benefit of the unbeliever or really new believer. The uh, other type of miracle, as you live under your covenant with God, as I've said, is going to be to propel you into a life of conquest. And it's the kind of miracle we see at the Jordan. It's not somebody else holding out a rod and this thing happens. It is you taking a step of faith into the water of impossibility and watching it divide. With each step you take, the water divides a little more and then a little more and then a little more. These steps of faith are what are required. I mean, the Lord didn't make any bones about it. You know, you're going to walk across the Jordan. Well, you obey him because you believe his word is the way you need to live. <clears throat> you're convinced of that. And so you begin to step into the waters of impossibility, which begin to part as you make your way. Jordan does have a natural explanation. And uh, you can read this in a lot of theology books, actually, unfortunately. Uh, but, you know, at this time of the year, uh, the Jordan flooded. It was no longer a little creek. You could wade across hundreds of yards across of raging torrents because the water piles up. At this little city called Adam, well out of sight of where they crossed, uh, that's where the erosion occurs, the landslides occur. Uh, that's where the river often gets blocked off until it can cut new channels, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, there's the, that natural explanation for this, uh, but it's no less of a stupendous miracle because it's a miracle of timing. And oftentimes we miss those miracles because we can find a natural explanation for something. In substance, we can explain away naturally what happened. We say it in a miracle. Like, you know, uh, somebody, it's a life and death situation that somebody get to Chicago within a, just a matter of hours. They can't possibly make it over the road. They have no money for an airline ticket, but somebody buys them an airline ticket and they go. And they don't call that a miracle. You know, unless God levitated them from Minneapolis to Chicago, <laughs> it wouldn't be a miracle. Yet, timing issues become significant in our determination of miracles we need and miracles that we get. And basically, you know, our faith can be involved to the extent, you know, we can't mandate that a particular brand of miracle happened but we can take our steps of faith and rest assuredly in the fact that it will occur. Again, verse 10. Have I talked to you enough about the parasites and the Hittites and, <laughs> and all of that? But, you know, once again, the opposition that they receive, you know, he's saying, I'm doing this. Verse 10 says, Joshua said, hereby you shall know that the living God is among you. That's why he's doing this miracle of propelling you into your life of conquest, victory, and blessing. Because then you'll have something you can look back to and know that the next bunch of parasites you face or the next bunch of Amorites you face or the next obstacle, the next conflict, 
Because conflict is going to be a fact of life when you begin moving into your land of promise. There will be opposition of a sort that, you know, a lot of people just don't want to engage in. I'll stay this side of the Jordan. I'm okay where I am. Well, you said that you have enough. God can't do any more than that. But he can always do what you're willing to allow him to do. And you allow him to do it by seeing where you're to go, having that conviction of your heart that this is your destiny in God, and you know there's an impossible obstacle. Maybe it's a Jordan, maybe it's a Jericho, a walled city, giants, I don't know what it might be, is an obstacle. Well, you take a step of faith in the timing that God quickens to your heart. Do it in faith. And you'll see the impossibility begin to divide in front of you. That's why he does this. So you can know as you become, you know, uh, determined to pursue his highest and best for your life. You can know he's with you because when you take that step of faith, he'll do a miracle. And of course, you know, uh, I think Perhaps one of the most significant considerations is that we build a memorial. We build our own little Gilgal. When we experience these miracles, and you will, then you have to make a memorial there that will affect all subsequent generations. Because it says to them, this is what happened in my parents' lives and the lives of my leaders in our ministry, this is what happened. And so we can know that God is with us. Just as surely as he said, Joshua, I'm going to be with you as I was with Moses. He's saying the same thing to us and then confirms it with the miraculous. Don't miss your miracle because you're not looking at the timing aspect. I had, you know, again, uh, time constraints would keep me from sharing this in any depth. Uh, but I have, early in our ministry, about three years in, I got corrected by Brother Copeland. Uh, didn't happen very often, but boy, when it happened, it hits you. You know, it's like we had just met them and had been invited down to spend three or four days with them, he and Gloria. And, um, and I very proudly made the statement some, sometime while we were down there, and we'd only been in the ministry for maybe three years at that point. I said, I haven't had to take a salary. You know, God's blessed me with enough in the business days that, you know, we were able to get the, you know, cover the cost of getting the church started, and then and we haven't had to take a salary. And he jumped on me. He said, you are cheating the people. Don't you remember 1 Corinthians 9 uh, where Paul says there's an exchange of spiritual deposits for natural financial enablement of the ministry. He said to the degree you allow them to sow into your life through the salary that the church pays you, you are giving them an opportunity on a spiritual plane in, in, in light of the word of God to receive revelation that wouldn't otherwise be available to them, to receive an anointing and understanding.
that wouldn't otherwise be available to him. See, you, you can't not... You cannot uh, refuse to take a salary. And he said, certainly don't act proud about it. You know, that's the way. So it kind of hit me pretty hard. I'm still young in the ministry at that point. And I realized, okay, uh, I can't do this. You know, the board of directors, of course, then reviewed, you know, on the basis of uh, what's happening in the church and uh, income averages across the country for that size of church, other ways that the IRS has stipulated ministerial comp compensation to be computed, uh, they set a salary for Lynn and for me, and do to this day the same way. And, uh, you know, church was small, so it wasn't a real big salary, but Kenneth had made the point, or the Lord through Kenneth, that I needed to trust him through the ministry to fulfill his word and meet the needs I mean, the Levitical priesthood were taken care of by the storehouses. Throughout Scripture, you see that interaction and that dependence. So, you know, okay, I've got to let the church take care of me. You know, and I was, you know, uh, facing the settlement of about a $50,000 matter from uh, five or six years prior to that during my business days. And uh, it was, you know... Something that could be argued, I had argued it already, regardless of the legal side of it, I did feel morally and ethically obligated to cough up that 50 grand and completely finish the connection I had to the business world at that point. So, and my plan had been to, you know, divest that amount of money uh, from my savings and uh, do that. And, uh, but, you know, the way the Lord had dealt with me, it's like, I need to trust him to do it in response to my doing my part in ministry. He'd bring it back the other way. Uh, not that the church would cough up extra 50 grand, but that through what they provided me, you know, as an approved salary, I would be able to meet that obligation. And uh, so I had made a settlement agreement for over a two-year two period which meant about 2000 a month for that. And I'm expecting God to part the Red Sea any minute now, you know, because I'm going to live by the word. But as the days came down, the more and more tempted I got to go cash in some stock and just take care of this thing. Because naturally speaking, you know, uh, the church salary wasn't enough to meet our needs and do that. And, uh, and, but I went on as a step of faith. I signed the agreement. And I guess in the back of my mind, I had the knowledge that if I had to, I could do that myself, but I didn't even want to go there. This is one of my first, my first tests of faith in ministry. And it's like, okay, uh, then I, the day came, I wrote a check for $2,000, which, you know, wasn't much less than my whole paycheck from the church at that point. And so I could, wasn't enough to meet any of, of the other family needs and so it's approaching crunch time. And what happens? Some guy that I didn't even know very well uh, gave me a check for $2,000 that first month. And he kept doing it for 24 months. And his last check stopped the day the obligation was fulfilled. That, that's the miracle of timing. 
I mean, you can rationalize all kinds of reasons a guy might be motivated to, to help this guy, you know, whatever. Uh, so it's not so much in substance, but it was in timing. You know, I actually thought for a while, Lynn went around and solicited support from somebody uh, without telling me about it. And I told her, you know, because I'm, I was really in my brain uh, even more than I am now back then. And it's like, you know, she got hugely offended. And uh, so, I mean, this was a miracle of timing that only he could do. And it started the moment I stepped into that water and it lasted until the obstacle was gone. And that's exactly the kind of memorial I have needed over my whole term of ministry and life. You know, things get tight. I'm doing what I know to do. I am doing the best I can do to live by faith. Now, a lot of times we make mistakes, but then we correct them, get back on the path. But doing the best I can, and I'm facing a lot of parasites and Amorites, and I don't know, man, this resistance is pretty tough here. I think back to this, and I can't tell you how many times that has reminded me. You can know that God is with you because of what he did. And there will be these kinds of places in your life that you need to memorialize. At any rate. Um, so I guess our, our takeaway, if I'm going to have to close this, and I am, uh, I, at the moment, I'm probably not done talking about the miraculous, not finished yet. Uh, if that's the case, I'll do it next week. But basically, uh, first of all, we take away from this text that we have to take the step of faith before the waters will part. People that are in covenant with God, you know, that's the typical one occasion you're going to get a miracle. I mean, there'll be other examples of possibilities, but this is the principal one. And so you want to realize not to overlook the miracles of timing uh, that are just as important as miracles of substance. It really doesn't matter. It's going to open the door for you to begin your, your life of conquest conquering the obstacles that stand in front of you. And so uh, that step of faith is always going to be needed. And, uh, you know, again, another possible rabbit trail would be to talk about you can take a step of foolishness and presumption as opposed to faith. So it's important that you know what a step of faith is. And, and be able to distinguish uh, between that and the kinds of things that you hear people say that don't know anybody. I'm just going to believe. I'm going to do this anyway. I know, you know, sky might fall, whatever. I'm going to do it anyway. No, a step of faith has been calculated in light of what God says uh, you should be believing about this. He says some of that in his word, and he says it to you by the Holy Spirit. And the key is what we see here, so that you know that you know. You're not hoping. You're not, you know, putting up a good front for your faith, friends. 
you know that God is going to perform because you are aligned with his word and you have the direction of his spirit. That's when you take that step of faith. Forget the natural circumstance. The river can subside in three months and you don't need a miracle. Wait a little longer. A little more money will come in. Something will change. You can do something else. No. No, you listen to the Holy Spirit. Take that step of faith. The second thing that is important is to realize that that miracle will occur for the purpose of reinforcing your commitment to this process. So every time after that step of faith, when you're approaching the walls of Jericho, maybe, and you begin to have second thoughts with this new set of ites, whoever they might be, <clears throat> think back. Think back to this because he said you can know that he'll take care of all of that. He'll take care of all of that. And then it needs to become a memorial for subsequent generations. You need to talk about it with your kids. You need to let them know how God has been a part of your life's experience and the things that he's done. Don't you want your children to be able to <clears throat> believe that he is El Shaddai? That he is more than enough? And so bring them in on the discussions. You know, uh, guys, it's, it's easy for us, and I say guys, maybe this could be reversed in some instances, but it was easy for me earlier in my walk with God to say, okay, you know, uh, Lynn, you know, she'll, she'll take care of the believing part. She'll take care of the faith part, the prayer part. I'm the smart one. I can figure it out. You know, she can take, I mean, really, I'm glad she's not here, by the way. Uh, but really, at this place in my life, you know, it was, this is kind of where I was. And so for, uh, for you guys, you need your own memorial. You know, uh, Lynn's got all kinds of memorials, all kinds of testimonies. She shares with everybody, but it's not enough for her to have it. I can't live off her testimonies. And so I need to be looking and understanding, you know, what these miracles might look like, whether it's substance or timing, that open doors for me into, you know, succeeding in a particular area. I need to make these things something that I talk about with my kids. And we as a church need to memorialize to all of the youth in this ministry the things that have made this ministry a reality. God used somebody, namely me, that knew nothing about ministry, no training, no theology, no divinity school. The only thing I had ever gone to school on or wanted to learn about was flying. Knew nothing about ministry. Yet he used Lynn and me to start a church. Had a, you know little rented room in the bottom of what used to be the Radisson uh, at 494 and 55. They had a little uh, stage and platform and drama area down there. And so we'd rent that and, you know, and I'd haul in all the equipment that I'd bought every Sunday, you know, and um, 
And Lynn would lead praise and worship on her auto harp. Now, she's got an okay voice, you know, but an auto harp. And, you know, we had 12 people out there, our first service. You know, after we had grown to 25 or so, I figured, well, she looks kind of lonely on the platform. I'll, I'll do praise and worship with her. So I got up there and lent my voice uh, to the process, you know, which uh, I don't know why you're laughing. I've got a good voice. <laughs> Joshua won the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua won the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. <laughs> but can you get the picture? Liz playing an auto harp. I'm trying to sing with her, and neither of us have ever been to school to teach the Bible or to know anything about anything. And we had the audacity to think that God was going to do something with that. Well, it says in his word, he uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So, you know, we've watched him honor his word. And as we have, we're building a library of memorials that we should be sharing with our youth, you know, and our young people and our children. The way a $40 million building you know, got built, the way, I mean, all of the things that have happened over the years, I have had zero, and I mean this not uh, in the wrong way, God's used me, but I know exactly where, you know, my bread got buttered. You know, this, this has not had anything to do with a man. And we need to convey the truth that if he'll, Use one person in a certain way. He'll use another person to just a greater degree in whatever area of endeavor they're in. I mean, you know, we need to memorialize the times that we are aware of God's presence and intervening power and make sure our people know about it. That's part of what I do in membership classes. I talk about the supernatural foundations of the ministry because it's... Uh, it's going to affect how the next generations of, of, of uh, people relate to their God and their world.